Is it really okay to ever question God's love or his wisdom? I say that especially when you love and serve him, but you experience tremendous loss. Hi, I'm Dr. Chuck Betters. I am the founder of Mark Inc. Ministries and host of this Helping Hope resource. Today I have Dr. Frank James, who is president and professor of historical theology at Missio Seminary in Philadelphia. And he joins me to talk about this very question. Now, Frank's story of loss started when his younger brother, Kelly, was trapped in a snow cave on Mount Hood in what is called an unyielding blizzard that prevented his rescue. Now, we know that news outlets from all over the world covered the fear and the anguish of Frank's family as they waited for news about Kelly. Frank, I want to thank you, first of all, for your willingness to talk about this painful loss and for helping us better to understand grief and lament. I want to welcome you to Mark Inc. Ministries. Why don't you tell us Kelly's story? I'd be glad to. Just as by way of preface, there's something important for me in being able to tell his story. Uh, uh, I have said in the past that, that the grief uh, connects me to my brother. It's one of the things that, that uh, so, so for me, there's a sense in which the grief is an important uh, point of, of connection. It was back in December of 2006, and I received a, call, a phone call about midnight, ironically, one of the, the, the dark, darkest point in the night. And uh, my mother had called and said that my little brother, the adventurer in our family, stuck in a snow cave on Mount Hood in Oregon. I was living in Florida at the time. And uh, as I have been wont to do with younger brothers, I'm sort of the one who uh, comes to the rescue when there are issues. And I had done that on numerous occasions when there was an issue in the family. So big brother Frank got on a plane and flew out to Oregon. Frankly, I was uh, fairly optimistic that we'd find a way to, to get Kelly. I didn't know the whole story at the time, but I was hopeful. I'm, I'm an optimist by nature. We got there and uh, the rescuers gave me the full picture and the full picture was pretty ominous. They were hopeful that they could get to him, but, but they could not say that with confidence. What had happened is Kelly was planning to climb Everest. That was his goal. And he'd gone out to Oregon in the dead of winter to sort of practice ice climbing, he and his two uh, climbing buddies. And this was a, a really relatively small mountain for him. He'd climbed mountains all over the world that were much, much higher. But the storm of the century hit. It just kept coming and coming and coming. And Kelly had gotten near the, the summit and they were overwhelmed with the winds and the snow. And they did what they'd done before. They dug a snow cave. And the three of them got in the snow cave to protect them, assuming that the wind and the storm would, would go over in a, in a day or maybe two. Uh, what had happened was that it was unrelenting. And so what happened is Kelly was the leader and he told his two friends, look, this is getting bad. You guys try to go out and make your way down the mountain and tell them where I am. His two buddies, uh, reluctantly said, okay, we'll, we'll do this. They went out and I actually saw the footsteps from photographs where two sets of footprints walk and suddenly they're gone. Uh, the wind swept them off the mountain. Their bodies were never found. 
What made this a national story is that probably the day before Kelly died, just around that time, in desperation, he uh, tried to call home with a cell phone in the snow cave. And against all odds, against all, <laughs> how that happened, nobody really knows, but suddenly he connected in Dallas, Texas with his wife and he spoke to his uh, two sons and was able to say goodbye. Uh, he knew he was in trouble. They knew he sounded strange. And so when I got there in Mount Hood, the goal was to represent, they asked me to represent the three families, the three climbing families. And so I was going out doing press conferences once or twice a day. And every day the storm kept coming and coming and coming and the rescuers would get partway up the mountain and be pushed back down. And uh, it was devastating. The, the families, uh, my family, my, my mom and my sister were there. The other families were there. It was absolutely devastating. The one thing that I did, and I felt that it was important for me, I was a president of a theological seminary at the time. And so my brother was a man of faith. And so I, I wanted to, to make sure that I communicated that, that we were people of faith. I didn't want to dramatize it. I did not want to make this a melodrama in any way, but I did want to let people know that we were people of faith and we were trusting the Lord would come and rescue Kelly. Uh, it didn't happen. And that sort of is the point at which deep disappointment came to me and to, and to the rest of the families. Kelly's body, I think it was seven or eight days after the storm hit, finally the storm relented. Rescuers made it up to the top of the mountain or near the top. They couldn't find him. And at the very last minute, they had come to me and said, look, we're, we're putting people's lives at risk. We're going to have to stop the rescue. And I had, can you give it one more shot? And they said, okay, we'll do one more. And they went back up to the mountain. And at the last moment, someone threw down an ice pick and heard something. And they, had, they found the ice cave and they found Kelly. He had, he had died certainly uh, uh, days before. The man who found him uh, came to me privately and spoke. And he said, your brother, something remarkable was in that snow cave. And what had happened is that Kelly knew he was dying and he took the glove off of his right hand and he put it up beside him and he held it up. It must have been nearly frozen as it was so that when the rescuer made it into the, into the cave, Kelly had pulled down all of his fingers except one. It looked like he was making an obscene gesture at first and the, the rescuer laughed and then he said, then I realized what he had done is he had held out his signet ring so that they could identify his body for his family. And that's really what the, the, the hand was. His last moments were thinking of his family so that they could have assurance that his body was identified. So uh, needless to say, we were uh, all devastated and, and we, miss, we miss Kelly a great deal. Tell us a little bit about Kelly. Kelly was, in my family, I was sort of the, the, uh, the Christian guy. Kelly was my youngest brother. He's the one brother that, that I sort of, I suppose, led to the Lord when he was in junior high. He and I were very close. We talked a lot. Uh, we shared a lot. Uh, Kelly was uh, in the upper room when he walked in. He, he was a, an adventurer. 
He climbed mountains all over the world. He, he ran triathlons. Anything to, to stress his physical limits. He was remarkable in that regard. I suppose I'm adventuresome in a very different way. I, I, I have the adventure of books and writing books. Kelly, the adventure for him, they were all physical. And as I say, his goal was to climb Everest. That's what he wanted to do. And this was a preparatory trip for that. Kelly was a landscape architect in Dallas, Texas, a high-end. Uh, some of his work was uh, shown in magazines. He was very artistic and very, very creative. His wife, Karen, was uh, a news anchor in Dallas, a reporter in Dallas. He'd been married before, his wife, Carol, and they had uh, four kids. And so they were all devastated by this, uh, this uh, the loss of their father. He was, he was the life of the party. At the time in his life, he was very, very active in church. Uh, he'd made some, some, some mistakes, uh, but he'd gotten his life back on track. Uh, we were all grateful that, that he was in a right relationship with the Lord at the time. I want to encourage those who are listening to this to visit the Mark Inc. website for the biography of Frank. And when you look at his biography, and the accomplishments academically that he has made. You will see a very brilliant scholar who has written many things about theology and the academics of theology, etc. Yet in this article that you wrote called Faith, Hope, and Grief, you say that it was extremely difficult. You say, though I am a preacher, a professor of historical theology, and the president of a theological seminary, I have found it agonizingly difficult to come to terms with my brother's death. You want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to do that. When I graduated seminary, I had everything all figured out, Chuck. I, I had, my theological system was tight and precise. I had it, I had it all. And I was arrogant and confident about what I knew. God was in my box. And then life happens. And Kelly was just one of a number of, of uh, challenges that my wife and I faced over the years. And one of the things that happened for us is we value theology. I, I'm a theologian. I teach theology. I, I enjoy it. But it has taken on a whole different dynamic for me. Uh, no longer is it an abstraction of some kind, a theoretical notion about who God is. Actually, God is much more real, much more of a mystery, much more difficult. He is not in my box. I'm in his. And the truth of the matter is, uh, God is not always predictable. I thought my theological system made him predictable, that I could anticipate what he would do or wouldn't do. And I was forced to live, uh, the way I sometimes say it, I was forced to live by faith. I thought I was living by faith before but I was living by uh, how much I knew, how much knowledge I had, how precise my theology was, and frankly, that was inadequate. Uh, it led to some heart-wrenching discussions with my wife, who is, is a writer and a theologian in her own right. We had deep discussions. Uh, we've continued to have those discussions, and both of us feel like that a, a fully robust theological system has always got to take into account not only the, the biblical teaching, but also the experience of life. Uh, true Christianity is both your head and your heart, and that those experiences 
the ups and the downs, all of those things need to be incorporated into a, a proper relationship with God. Theology ultimately is about knowing God. J.I. Packer has a famous book uh, with that title. And Packer, who is a friend of mine, just really uh, nailed it when he talked about theology as knowing God, because there's a personal dimension to that. And I think that even though I had a very strong personal relationship with Christ before Kelly's death, I think there was a, a deep wrestling with God in a way that I had not done before. As painful as that was, as much of a struggle as it was, I think I came to a different kind of relationship with God, one that included mystery, where before I had it all figured out. And so I live, the way I sometimes say is, I have to actually live by faith now in a way that I hadn't done before. So I put all that together, and, it, and my experiences in life, my theological understanding, uh, all of that is wrapped up together, and, and I, don't have, I don't have God neatly tied up into a, a theological box, as I once did. You were the first to hear about Kelly's death. I was the first to ask the question when we went to the ER the night that Mark was killed. I knew the routine as a pastor. I'd been to the, to the hospital many times with other people, and I knew they had a death room on one side, and a, uh, he's still alive on the other side. And we had passed the accident scene on the way to the hospital and we saw the car. And I remember putting my hand on my wife's knee and I said, this is not good. This cannot be good. And when we got to the hospital, I asked the nurse and our children were rushing in in their cars behind us. I said, I know the routine, is he dead? And cause she had turned toward the death room and she shook her head yes. And I asked about his friend Kelly and she said she was dead too. And my, I turned around and I looked at my wife who grabbed me and started beating on my chest, yelling and screaming, no, no, no. And that's, Frank, that's the first time I ever saw wailing and lament face to face. You talk about wailing. You talk about lament. And I, I just... I saw it. I saw what it looks like. I'd read about it, preached on it many, many times about the laments, especially the Lamentate, Book of Lamentations and all of the talk about lament. Yeah. But the look in my wife's eyes that day, that was, that was lament face to face. Can you elaborate a little bit about yeah. what you mean when you say, you say in your article, the Bible sometimes refers to wailing as an especially forlorn kind of weeping. That is what I heard that night. Can you tell us what happened? I was the one they called because I was the sort of spokesperson. And they said, you know, we found Kelly's body and uh, he's, he's gone. And then it became my responsibility to walk into the room where the family was gathered. The, the three families were gathered, children, everyone. And uh, I, I had to say, Kelly's gone. And, you know, of course, you know, you're, I, my feeling was I, I was supposed to be the strong one and trying to make sure I delivered the information appropriately. But what I heard that night was, was not just crying. It was not just sadness. It was, it was of a different order. And that's why I referred to wailing because uh, the, the screams, the, uh, boy, it just, it just gets me right now. The pain, 
of that of that moment, and I remember Kelly's twelve-year-old son uh, saying to me, "But Jesus talked about resurrection. Kelly's going to be resurrected. My daddy is going to be resurrected." And we listened to that, and we were all thinking, "Could God do that? Of course He could. Of course He could." But we know He's not going to do that. That was even more poignant at the moment, and 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 the 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 sounds that came out of my mother's mouth, the sounds that came out of the children's mouths was not like anything I'd ever heard. It was a deep groan beyond anything I've ever heard. And uh, as I said in the article, I, I do not ever want to hear that again. Too painful, too painful. I remember when our kids came in after we had found out that Mark was gone. Uh, our oldest son, who's now, he took, took over for me at the church when I retired. Our oldest son, about six foot four, collapsed on the floor. And he just was screaming and wailing. Uh, an ugliest sound of everyone to hear. And our next to the youngest, who's also a, a PCA pastor, now, he wailed for days. Uh, they gave him shots, and the shots never touched him. You could hear him a block and a block and a half away, just wailing and wailing and wailing. Now, for me, that was the, one of the hardest parts of the grief process, is watching my family hurt that badly and not be able to fix it. Because, you know, as men, especially as leaders, we're used to fixing things. Absolutely. And when I, when I held Mark's body in my arms and I couldn't do anything to fix this, death is ugly. You refer to the ugliness of death in your article. What do you mean by that? This is my own personal view, so take it for what it's worth. I, I've been to lots of funerals, and, and, and a lot of funerals uh, often will celebrate uh, a life. And I understand that, and I respect and appreciate all of that. Certainly the tragic circumstances of Kelly's death did not lend themselves to any kind of celebration. I, I, I theologically believe that death is an intruder into this life. It is not the way it was created to be. This is part of the fall. I am one of those who, who does not celebrate death. I anguish over it. It is a reminder of how much I need a savior. It is a reminder that there is, is evil and death and tragedy in this world. I, I, can't, I can't celebrate that. I, I have to acknowledge that it's, it's evil. Now, there is great blessing, and I'm grateful for all of that. But death is an ugly thing. And I, 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 as I say in my article, I view it as an, as, as an intrusion into what was supposed to be in the original vision of God. And, and uh, so that's, that's sort of where, where I stand. And I, again, very respectful of folks who have a different approach to death. And they're different, they're different the circumstances, no doubt impact. Uh, if someone has lived a, a, a long, full life, I, I can understand how they might want to celebrate. I, I, for one, cannot do that. Is it because of the suddenness of his death? I, I think there is a theological sort of purpose for me. I, I, again, I'm grateful for people who've lived a, a faithful life, but for me, even then, death is an awful thing because I don't believe that's the way it's supposed to be. The suddenness of Kelly's death uh, certainly played a role, but I think I think it's it's actually deeper than just the suddenness of it or the tragedy of it. 
I guess I'm one of those who thinks that, that, that death is not supposed to be, originally not supposed to be part of, of our existence. When we lost Mark, I read everything I could read on grief. I went back to so many of the old writings, many of the new ones, and finally came upon, I think it was Dobson's book, When, when God Doesn't Make Sense. Yeah. And I read that whole book looking for an answer. And when I came to the end of it, uh, this is nothing against Dobson, but his conclusion was there are times when God doesn't make sense. And yeah. I, was looking, I was looking for more than that. And I remember I was at a conference at Perimeter Church in Atlanta. Shortly after we lost Mark, I was, I was still raw in pain. I went to their little bookstore down there. And at the bottom of this, the shelves, all the way tucked at the bottom, actually curled up and kind of moved out of the way by the other books was a little book called Lament for a Son. You know that book? It's, uh, I know the author and I know the book. Well, I got to tell you, that was the one book that helped me because he spoke from my angle, from my perspective. And you say in your article that there were times when you wondered why, when Kelly was freezing to death on top of Mount Hood, you raised the question, why didn't God save him? Why didn't God intervene? God certainly could have intervened. When Mark left our house that night that he was killed, uh, I sat there in my heart and I said, you should take this girl home because Mark was a brand new driver. And my wife was sitting there thinking the same thing. You should drive her home because Mark's not experienced enough. Both of us thought the same thing. And in retrospect, we look back and say, why didn't we listen? Could we have stopped this? One of us should have gotten up and taken her home. We, we, we reasoned that. But we now know that that wasn't God's plan. And you say in your article, you say, where was God when Kelly was freezing to death on Mount Hood? For me, it is not whether I should ask the question, but how I ask it. One can ask the question in a fit of rage, shaking one's fist at God. And many of us, if we are candid, have done just that. But once the primal anger settles to a low boil, we can, and I would submit should, ask the question. You want to elaborate on that a little bit? Do you dare question God? Absolutely, yes, is my response to that. There are different ways to question. You can question in an arrogant way and, and sort of elevate yourself and try to call God to account as if, he, as if he reports to you somehow. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that a genuine relationship that I have with my daughter or with my wife, a genuine relationship is one in which I or my, my family can ask me the hard questions. That's what a real relationship is. Of course, God is defined and described as our father, and we are his children. And I think by virtue of that relationship, in order to deepen the vital relationship, I think we should ask those hard questions because we have a genuine, honest, real relationship with God. I think before this tragedy, I think I would, would have been hesitant to do that sort of thing, you know, I had this picture of God is sort of far away and sort of elevated and judged, you know, a little bit of a judgmental sort of being. And I think, you know, no, no, that's, that's not who God is. He's, a, he's my father, and I can talk to my father. I can ask hard questions. By the way, what you described in discovering Nicholas Volterstorff, a, a lament for a son, 
I had exactly the same experience. People sent me book after book after book. I threw them away. I couldn't stand them. I wasn't angry at the, at the people who wrote them. I appreciated what they were trying to do, but nothing touched me until, until I read Nicholas Volterstorff. Words, I had the opportunity to meet him and share with him my grief, and he was a very, very gracious man. He invited me to, uh, to dinner, and we just talked. And he mostly just listened, uh, but a godly man who understands and who understood grief. But I, sh- I resonate with you so much on that. <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting because when my wife started grieving the night we were told and beating on my chest and saying, no, 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 I realized then that that's exactly what God really wants us to do in an authentic and transparent sort of way is to really beat on his chest and question in a loving and caring way, you know, Lord, you could have stopped this, but you didn't. Now you have redefined normal for me. My life is moving in a totally different direction than it was. And I want to beat on your chest a little bit. I want to ask you questions. I don't understand why. Why did this happen? You could have saved him. You could have saved Kelly. Uh, you could have somehow allowed him to be to be found, and and raising those kinds of questions, I believe helped to deepen my understanding of my need for a savior, the need that I have to really defeat this enemy called death, to stand in the power of Christ and to defeat death. Like Paul said, "Where is your sting? To the grave. Where is your victory? You have no victory over me, because you have given me." all that I need to defeat this horrible, ugly enemy. Frank, you know, I want you to talk to the person out there right now who has been suddenly invaded by grief. Uh, I don't know, maybe there's a difference, and I'm trying to be gracious in this respect. There's a difference between losing somebody you love suddenly and unexpectedly and at a young age than there is for someone who has lived a full life Sure. Uh, and maybe you've had time to prepare for their death through a long illness. But mm-hmm. the suddenness of snatching away your brother, and in my case, snatching away my son, left me with a real question about God's love as my father. Yeah. You know, I, I really started to question, you know, I would never treat my children this way. Did you have those feelings at all? Sure. I, I wrestled with, with all of that. I I referenced this in my article. Uh, I'm a Reformation scholar, and so I've read Luther and Calvin. And one of the things I've always appreciated about Luther, Luther embraces these kinds of tensions in life. And he he describes faith in this remarkable way. Faith for for Luther is not walking down an aisle. It's not uh, affirming a confessional statement. It is a deep, difficult, challenging, ongoing kind of thing. In fact, the word that he uses is a phrase called a grasping faith. There is a kind of desperation in true faith where you're grasping to hold on to God for dear life when everything else seems to be going awry and everything else doesn't quite come together for you. And Luther understood that in a deep way. And that's why he uses a special word sometimes for faith. It's a grasping. And I I elaborate on that and feel like it's a 
almost a desperate faith. And certainly my faith uh, has that, that sense of desperation, that sense of grasping. If what I would say to someone who is struggling with grief, particularly the sudden, a sudden death, and I think you're right, those, the, the emotional impact of a sudden death is quite different from someone who has a long extended illness. One of the things that helped me, one is the book by Nicholas Folterstorff. That, that was critical and helpful because it was honest and powerful and well-written and all of that. But going back to the Psalms, I can't imagine what was going through when he included Psalm 10 or Psalm 13, because those are Psalms that where David is reflecting, God, where are you? I feel abandoned. I, I don't know where to turn. The world is upside down. Where are you when I need you the most? And there is an honesty and an integrity and a desperation, dare I say, in David's words. These, these, these songs, these psalms that were sung generation after generation for the people of God. And then it always comes back in the last few verses where David is wailing in his own, with his words. He still comes back and said, I, I still trust you. Where else can I go? Where else can I go? And I think that, that, you know, in the midst of all the complexity and the heartache and, dare I say, disappointment with God, there comes a point where you have to say, where else can I go? God's love is, it's challenging. I mean, think about it. What kind of love is it that would sacrifice his own son? That, that's a different kind of love. <laughs> a love that I think I resonate with exactly. And could God have saved Kelly? Could he have rescued Kelly? Of course he could have. But I have to live with this measure of mystery. And this mystery pushes me to have to trust God in ways that I never imagined before. And I tell my students often that my thumbnail definition of faith is trusting God even when you don't quite understand what he's mm. doing. That's a different kind of faith. We lived in a probably a two to three year darkness where it, it literally looked like there was a cloud. Our eyes did not see clearly because we were in the process of discovering that new level of normal because normal was going to be redefined for us. And I lived in those early Psalms where David raises questions like, why do you hide yourself from me in time of trouble? God seemed so distant. He didn't seem like he was real. All of a sudden, my theology was being crystallized into this this, uh, this test tube, so to speak. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, holding on to him. And David's Psalms that always start with these questions of where are you and why and questioning God always end in worship. He always ends by worshiping God. And I, I look back on those, those early Psalms and what they meant to me. Uh, they were my lifeline. And I realized then that I wasn't holding on to him. He was holding on to me. I was tightly in his grip. That's why I sign all my letters that way, in his grip. God is holding on to me when I've let go. I want to share an experience, and then I'd like you to react as to whether or not you had something similar. One Sunday morning, I woke up. This was shortly after we lost Mark. I, I took no time off from preaching because I carried my congregation with me in my grief journey, including those moments like this one where I went out, I took a walk on a Sunday morning before church. 
And I started saying things to God like, don't laugh. Uh, you don't deserve me. I've been, fa- I've been faithful to you. I would never treat my children this way. You could have stopped this. Uh, and I beat on his chest. And in the middle of that outpouring of my wrath, so to speak, God stopped me in front of a house. He said, who lives there? And I, 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 could actually, I could actually hear in my spirit him raising that question, who lives there? And I gave them the name. He said, pray for them. And what turned out as an anger journey turned into a prayer walk. As, he got, as I got outside of myself and started looking at the needs of others and the pain of others, I stood up in the pulpit that Sunday and I told them that story. I told them that I wondered whether or not God even existed. And I shared my grief in a transparent way. And so many people, so many people commented how appreciative they were that plasticized Christianity doesn't work when you're walking through the valley of the the shadow of death in this kind of tragic loss. Did you ever question God that way? I don't know that I seriously, it's it's hard to be angry toward a God that doesn't exist. Uh, In fact, because God exists, that makes these issues even more difficult and more poignant and more to the point. If God doesn't exist, this was just a random happening. And and that, that, in some ways, that would be easier to live with, I suppose. But it's when you know there is a God (laughs) that, that these issues become even more perplexing. But I think it's fair to say that, that my heart has been tenderized. I have been on a kind of a, a mission where I, I talk uh, in my classes, uh, when I speak at churches, when I, uh, I am not afraid to talk about my own vulnerability, my own heartbreak. Uh, I feel there's a kind of mission in that. Uh, I want to be a different kind of man. I, I don't want to be the man who has all the answers. I'm not the answer man. Mm-hmm. I'm a fellow pilgrim journeying in this life with all of its ups and downs and challenges and heartache. I, I'm in it with, with other folks. And so I find that my heart has been deeply tenderized and compassionate for others. But for me, you know, I didn't understand why God behaved and didn't come to Kelly's rescue. But but for me, the, the issue was even more poignant because I knew God, I believed God existed, and he still didn't come. That's where the rub was for me. Yeah, you know, you, you say in your article, you say there is disappointment, sadness, and confusion, but there is no retreat from God. Instead, I find myself drawn to God. Where else can I go with my grief? To be sure, God is more mysterious, enigmatic, than I thought, but still I can't shake loose from him. There seems to be a kind of gravitational pull toward God. I'll tell you, I really resonate with that. I really resonate with that paragraph. Well, you said you talked about how you felt like if God's, God has you in his grip. Well, that's a, just another way of saying the gravitational pull. God pulled me inextricably in my disappointment, in my anger, in my frustration. He pulled me to himself. So it's, I think we're saying very much the same thing. You rightly pull out of Psalm 13, verse one, you say, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then a few verses later, 
David is saying, but I trust in your unfailing love. Even as he pleads with God to come to his rescue, David finds himself inexorably drawn to him. Yeah, yeah. That's what you're saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. You know, one of the profound, uh, difficult lessons I think that I learned, similar to what you learned with Mark's death and Kelly's death on Mount Hood, is that God is manifesting himself in our grief. He is showing, you know, that's it's really, as I look back on it, that's one of the, the best decisions I ever made was to grieve before my congregation, yes. to take them on the journey with me. And of course, I was blessed to, to have a congregation that was willing to do that and understood yeah. rather than packing their bags and saying, I don't want a pastor <laughs> who's questioning whether or not God believes in yes. him. So, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which we grieve but not as those who have no hope. Life will prevail in the end. Kelly will live again, maybe not in this world, but in, in a different way. So I, my hope is, is in Christ that he will indeed do what he has promised, that there will be indeed be a resurrection. I can hear somebody sitting across the table from you right now who has experienced some sudden loss, some divine invasion, where they look at you and they hear you talk, they say something like, you know what, Frank, I'm glad that worked for you. (laughs) I'm glad that you have peace in your heart right now, that you're able to reconcile Kelly's death, but it's just not cutting it for me. What would you say to them? I would say peace is elusive for all of us. I, I would not describe myself as having resolved this tension or that I'm at peace entirely. Uh, I, am, I, am, I continue to be troubled. I continue to wrestle. So I, I, would, you know, I would reach out and I would touch and grab that person if I could, and I would say, hang tough. Don't run away. Embrace the grief. Don't, don't run away from it. Recognize that it's real. Think it through, and I, I, w- I, would, I would encourage them to read the Psalms. I, I, I continue to be stunned that God would put Psalm 10 or Psalm 13 in the Bible and then, and then instruct his people to sing those, those hymns, those Psalms over the, over the ages. Uh, God is certainly telling us that, that, that there will be tragedy in this world, and that I think that's part of where a pastor, a professor, needs to come alongside and be a part of, of the grief. Uh, I don't know that we have easy answers, answers that will remove all tension. When people say peace, I, 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 I would not describe myself as at peace. I, I'm still, I still have a, have a wound, and that wound has not healed entirely. And, and I actually think that's, there may be some real spiritual value to acknowledging and carrying that wound uh, on a daily basis. When we uh, had the funeral service for Mark, people told us later how difficult it was for them standing in line waiting to greet us, wondering, what do we say to him? What do, how do we communicate? And there are two people, you know, probably, I don't know, over a thousand people came through the line, uh, but there are two that I remember distinctly. One was a pastor who is now with the Lord, an elderly Baptist man 
who knew of me because we worked in the same state, but we really didn't know each other all that well. And he walked through the line and he grabbed me by the shoulders. He just looked at me and he said, with Jesus, like Jesus. And I'll never forget that. That's what's on Mark's grave marker now. It's with Jesus, like Jesus. And the second person was a, was a woman who cared for a paraplegic friend of hers. And she came through, she was standing in a, sitting in a red light and weeping hysterically, wondering what she was going to say to me. And she came through the line and she looked at me and she said, there are some wounds that only heaven can heal. And that's really where we are. We're, we're yep. still wounded. My wife and I, we always refer to some of our struggles as we're two wounded soldiers trying to drag each other off the battlefield. Yeah. And that's really what grief is. But if we don't have Christ, we don't have hope. Yep. We, just, we just, we don't have any hope. I'm wondering whether, this, this is leading into this, this final question I'd like to ask you, because I think it'll help our listeners. What do you say to people like Chuck Betters, like Frank James? What do you say to them when they are suddenly faced with horrible, horrible grief that they know is going to change their lives? What are the ones, who are the ones you remember uh, that, that blessed you the most? Well, frankly, I don't have any, any positive recollections. I was mostly uh, <laughs> disappointed in what people said, actually. I knew they meant well, and, and I took it that way. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any anger towards individuals. I, I can certainly tell you that, that when someone walks up to you and says, he's in a better place, or that this is God's will, uh, or, you know, this is, a, this, this is okay. That, that's not what to say. <laughs> I, didn't, I, I recoiled against that, uh, those kinds of simplistic responses, pious and well-intentioned though they are. Uh, the first thing I would say is I would hope that people would acknowledge the grief and say, I, I, I can see that. I know it's real. I, I know it's there. And then I would have to talk about uh, Christ as one who, who understands that grief and who is with you, not apart from the grief, but in the grief itself. Mm. Uh, even though I didn't have a lot of folks say to me uh, wise, poignant things, I, I tell you, I do remember one thing that was kind of interesting. It was uh, Kelly had just died. It was on the national news. And I was in a restaurant with my mother. It was a couple of days after Kelly's body had been found. And we'd ordered breakfast. And uh, when the time came to pay, the waitress walked up and said to me, the man over there paid for that for you. And though there were no words exchanged, he was gone. It was a person who, who didn't speak with words. He spoke in a subtle way of just trying to say, I know what you're going through. And acknowledging the grief is uh, the way I interpreted that. I, just, I found that to be rather poignant and encouraging to me, without words. There are a couple of things that happened right a day or so after we lost Mark. A man shows up at our door well-dressed business suit. He was Italian because he told me he was. He said, I don't want to intrude on your grief. He says, but I was the first one to the accident scene when, when it happened. I found out later he was the second one, but the first one was the emergency attendant who happened to be Mark's youth group leader. When he, and he discovered that Mark was in the, was in the car 
he literally got up and ran away. He couldn't stay there. But the Italian guy, he said, um, I just had to come to your house and tell you that when I came to the car, he said, your son had the biggest grin on his face. He, and Mark was known for his smile. And he was smiling. And, you know, of course, our immediate belief was, what did he see that caused him to smile in the midst of this tragedy, uh, this accident? Uh, a big smile on his face. And we had little things like that that happened that I believe, I truly believe, were God's way of just giving us a brief 30-second respite from the pain that we were in, sort of pushing ourselves up by the nails and, um, and, and realizing that God was just showing you a little bit of what happened there just to alleviate the pain, even if, even if for just a moment. And, you know, the youth group leader came back later, the uh, emergency attendant, and he told us the same thing. He said, I, I saw Mark in the car. He said, and he was looking at me, but he was dead. He was looking at me with a big smile on his face. He said, I, I couldn't take it. He said, I had to run away. What did he see there? What did, what did Kelly see uh, while he's holding up his signet ring? What, what, did, what did he see that maybe we'll never know in this life, but we'll know in the life to come? Uh, Frank, I, I tell you, I really appreciate you wrestling with God and lamenting uh, and wailing and doing all the things that we need to do in order to, to really rest in him, to find our peace in him. We're 25 years actually now, 26 years out. And we still have those moments where we go back and we weep. People, you know, they know that we're, we're grieving over our loss just as you are with Kelly. I wish I knew him because the way you're describing him it sounds like he's somebody that really walked into a room and lit the place up, was the life of the party, so to speak, somebody that you wouldn't be bored around. That's right. Uh, sounds like, was he, how much younger than you was he? Four years, for about five Four years. years. So five years. You have other brothers and sisters? I have two other brothers uh, in between. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he was the youngest? He was the baby. He was the baby, yeah. Yeah, we, we yeah, teased him about that quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, I, 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 well, just one final word from you I think would be helpful. Speak once again to that person who does not know Christ. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would invite them into the mystery of, of Christ, that therein lies our salvation, our comfort, our hope. It's uh, Life is hard, and I would not uh, in, for a moment suggest that there aren't challenges probably every day for most of us, but the hope we have is in the the risen Savior. Well, Frank, thank you so much for such a transparent and uh, helpful conversation. I am Chuck Betters, and you have been listening to another Help and Hope resource produced by Mark Inc. Ministries. My guest has been Dr. Frank James, president of Missio Seminary, and you can learn more about Frank as well as find numerous other free Help and Hope resources when you visit us at markinc.org. That's M-A-R-K inc.org. If this conversation or any of our resources has been helpful, you can let us know when you visit us at markinc.org. Thank you so much for listening. May God richly bless you.